Welcome to Ed Ideas, relevant conversations for Christian education. As image bearers of God, we have been created to actually carry out this work of cultivation, unpacking, unfurling, so that making is how we be human. Anytime culture is going through transition and there's significant change, you can either look at it as, hey, this is the worst thing ever, or what an opportunity. We know that all adolescents are asking some really direction-setting questions in their life. The very first thing said about us in the Hebrew Scriptures is not that we are bad, that we are dirty, that we are sinful, that we are shameful, that we are anything. The very first thing said about us is we bear the image of God. Welcome to Ed Ideas. This is Brandon Tatum, and today we have Mark Matlock with Barna Group as he presents on the most up-to-date and relevant data for Generation Z and spiritual formation. This was his presentation at the Museum of the Bible. I will apologize that there were some technical difficulties with the PowerPoint during his presentation that you'll kind of hear about. But I hope you enjoy this as he talks about how can we best understand this generation and what techniques and strategies should we begin to implement. So in, in addition to everything else that he said, I'm also a vegan running enthusiast and a blogger. And uh, I put this post up a couple weeks ago. That was pretty funny. Uh, isn't it great that after lunch they give you the data guy? All right? Uh, that's just like a not a great situation I'm walking into here, but that's okay. Uh, how are we doing? Keep, keep talking and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll keep going? Okay. All right. Uh, So we do have a copy of Faith for Exiles, the book that David and I wrote, studying the faith practices of 18 to 29-year-olds. We have a copy for each of you uh, as you leave today. talking a little bit about generations today, and uh, one of the things uh, that some of you are familiar with, the way different generations break down, and uh, and, and those of us that kind of are involved in generational science, we know that it's not uh, an exact science, so I'm going to give you, there we go, I'm going to give you some, uh, there we go. I want to give you just a timeline here of the different generations that are living among us. I want to set it up a little bit just to explain kind of what's going on. All right. So the builders uh, are our oldest living generation. They were born between 1927 and 1945. By the way, do we have any builders in the room here today? Any builders? All right. Oh, wow. Hey, give them a big hand. Uh, great to have you here with us. A lot of the the good things that we enjoy in life right now are the result of the builder generation. They had a vision of the future. If you look at the futurists of the builder generation, people like Walt Disney and author Ray Bradbury, 
um, they, they had this idea that our interior world would improve if we could just make an exterior world better. So we had these visions that mom would push a button on the countertop and a fully cooked meal with all the trimmings would come up out of the surface and she would have robots that would help her vacuum and we kind of have some of that's true today, uh, the Roomba. And so, uh, so, so they had this idea and if you went to a builder father and you said, hey dad, why don't you ever tell me that you love me? He would say, well, look in the refrigerator. Is it filled with food? Look at the roof over your head. Uh, I've got money in a savings account so I can help send you to college. Um, that's how I'm showing you that I love you. It was about this exterior world. And as a result, they, uh, they, they were responsible for doing so many things infrastructure-wise in our country, creating programs that allowed us to be strong and flourish. Uh, they, they began the, uh, the civil rights movement uh, that allowed for greater equality among diverse peoples. Um, just a really super incredible generation, and we have a lot to, to thank them for. But then they were followed by the boomers, uh, 1946 to 1964. How many boomers do we have in the room here? Boomers, boomers, there you are, and you ruined it for the rest of us, all right? You guys just took every good thing they did. No, I'm kidding. Uh, your generation was not defined by World War II. Your generation was defined by Vietnam and starting to look at authority figures and challenging them. And you were not so interested in what was going on out here as much as what was going on inside of here. You didn't like the answer that your dad gave you, that there was food in the refrigerator and there was a roof over your head. You wanted to experience something different. And so values like peace, joy, and love marked your generation. You also, as you decided, instead of fighting the man, let's become the man, uh, you all became some of the greatest entrepreneurs of some of the most groundbreaking companies that changed our country and transformed our economy, not just in the United States, but globally uh, as well. So as we, we look at the boomers, you were called that because you were such a massive, big generation, everybody starting families after World War II. Uh, and you gave birth to the Busters, or as we've come to know them, Gen X. They were originally called the Busters because they were such a small generation. Why was that? Well, the Boomers uh, experienced women's liberation. Women were, uh, were, were uh, getting into the workforce. They were being educated. They were having careers on their own. But they were also, for the very first time, able to control their reproductive systems with the advent and the introduction of the pill. And so a lot of Gen Xers were actually surprises. Uh, our parents you know, wanted to have children, just not when they had us. We were the generation of latchkey kids, where that kind of phrasing became um, known because people didn't really understand how you know, vulnerable the pill was as a, a mode of contraception. And so a lot of us were happy surprises uh, that um, they came into our parents' lives and, and we interrupted them uh, a little bit. We're a very small generation, though, compared to the boomers and the millennials that follow. We were called Generation X because we hated labels, and uh, we've also helped define some of the labeling of future generations, but Gen Xers uh, were defined by uh, the movie Reality Bites, okay? So the millennials, millennials born between 1980 and 19, oh, I'm sorry, uh, the, the busters in that 1970s, I didn't acknowledge the busters in the room. How many busters do we have in the room, Gen Xers do we have in the room? All right, wow, a lot of us. Okay, I'm one too. Uh, we're going to have a very unique role to play as generations progress. Because we are sandwiched uh, as a smaller generation in between the boomers and the millennials, the boomers have held on to their positions a little too long. 
all right? They kept the keys uh, in their pocket. They redefined aging, uh, and so retirement's been a lot longer. But some of them can't retire because 2008, just as they were getting ready to think about that, uh, the, the economy collapsed, and they lost a lot of their savings. And so they did not have some economic strength to go into that, so they've held on to their positions a little longer. What that means for those of us that are Xers is by the time we get our seat at the head of the table, it's gonna be time to hand it off to a millennial, all right? Therefore, we are going to be a transition generation, a bridging generation between these two really powerful generations. We have a very special role to play, I believe, in our future. Then we got our millennials, born between 1980 and 1995-ish, okay? How many millennials do we have in there? Any millennials, millennials? There are a handful of you, and we are really glad you guys are here, okay? Just want you to know that, and we've got some trophies for you when you pick up the book. Uh, we'll give those to you. Bad joke, and let me tell you, I hate the way your generation has been mischaracterized, misunderstood, because when they tease you about the trophies, who gave you the trophies? You didn't ask for the trophies. It was your Gen X parents that felt bad that you that they, they we, you were like an over-nurtured generation. We were responding as latchkey kids to our moms and dads um, and, and what was going on. We were the generation that actually could know the gender of our child before it was born because uh, sonograms were becoming so routine in pregnancy care that uh, we were able to know the, the birth of our child. What did that mean? Well, my mom told me, hey, you know, when you were, uh, when you were born, we had the choice between the avocado green crib and the harvest gold crib. That was kind of it, you know? Uh, my mom had my twin brothers, who were also Xers, uh, and she didn't even know she was having twins. Uh, she went into the hospital because they didn't do sonograms as a regular thing. So they pulled one brother out and then said, oh my, there's another baby in there on Christmas Eve. My dad had to figure out how he was going to take care of two children when he was really only prepared for one. Uh, and so, uh, so a whole different framing. What that allowed for was an entire industry of nurturing to be created. Because now we could create all of these options for nurseries, uh, for taking care of children. If you were a Gen Xer, you actually had to have a work ethic to watch cartoons. Um, because they only came on at a certain point in time on Saturday and in the morning. And if you missed it, we did not have VCRs when we were kids or, or, or DVRs or any of that type of technology. So if you didn't wake up in time for, uh, for cartoons, you didn't get to see them. But your generation grew up with entire channels devoted to programming just for you. You had the Kid Gap, Baby Cap. Uh, hand-me-downs became almost something that were, was unheard of for the millennial generation. Now, the millennial generation is really, really important. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about them today. Uh, and, and one of the reasons is because they have experienced something, a, a massive disruption globally that no other generation has really ever experienced. That disruption that was brought on by the internet, social media, technology. And what it's done is it's allowed a generation, for the very first time probably in our history, to actually have skills and a way of imagining and dreaming for the future that no other generation prior has. It's not just about them being able to set your VCR or be able to fix your iPhone when it's doing something weird. Um, it's that they literally have a different way of imagining and dreaming, which requires that we think about differently about how we give them seats at the table. Does that make sense? 
So that's the millennial generation. Following them were the Digitals, born between 1995 and uh, 2009. Uh, they were originally called Digitals. Everybody's calling them Generation Z now. Um, Generation Z is, is, is kind of de defined the way they are because they never breathed air that didn't have Wi-Fi in it. Uh, they always have known that. They don't know what 10 cents a minute is. Uh, my son, who falls into the digital category, you know, he came in one day because we had drop calls. He goes, hey, Dad, I got a great invention. Nobody's ever going to have a drop call ever again. And I'm sitting there going, oh, man, we are getting ready to, you know, this may actually be the greatest idea he comes up with. Can't wait to hear what it is. He says, Dad, what if we invent phones with cords? He goes, because then you won't have a drop call. And he literally thought he had invented something that had never been dreamed of before. He was so proud of himself. And I'm like, son, we used to have to stand like two feet away from the wall to have a conversation with somebody. And then Christmas would come and you'd get that extension cord for the phone. Remember that, all of you that are old enough to remember that? And you'd like walk around the house talking, knocking over lamps and vases and all that kind of stuff. Well, the digitals don't know any of that type of, of, of life. They grew up where technology was something that was rather ordinary and something that was very routine in their life. As a result, some of them actually have a love of analog things. So you see a rise of vinyl and cassette tapes being used again and film and photography uh, because they have a fascination with some of those more material, mechanical ways of going about uh, doing things that has been converted over to digital. Then we have Generation Alpha, they're in elementary school from 2010 to 2025. We don't know tons about them right now, but we do know that their parents that are having them are more educated, are a little bit more financially secure, and are having them much later in life because they're getting married much later in life, which means there's a very good chance they're gonna be a generation of only children. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of what we're looking at, okay? So go ahead and advance that for me. So why did I share that with you? Well, because we know that teenagers go through a lot of the same things developmentally, but they do it at a different point and period in time. And those life events and world events change who we are. We know that all adolescents are asking some really direction-setting questions in their life. They're asking questions of identity. Who am I? They're asking questions of autonomy. What decisions are mine to make? They're asking questions of belonging. Where and with whom do I fit in? And they're asking questions of epistemology. What is my trusted source of truth? Now, you all know that if you walk up to one of the middle schoolers uh, on your campuses and say, what are you doing right now? They're probably not going to say, I'm just working out those epistemological problems uh, that I have in my life. Uh, but they're constantly asking themselves, how can I trust something? What is trustworthy? Uh, what can I have confidence in? Now, every generation, uh, social psychologists tell us, asks these questions, but because of the time that they live in and the issues that are going on in that day, and the economy, all kinds of different things, they're going to arrive at different answers to some of those questions. For instance, Gabe talked a lot about the gender issues that are going on um, and the prevalence of those. In fact, we know that among uh, Generation Z, 29% of them know somebody who was once one gender and is now another gender. That's a third of that generation personally knows somebody who has transitioned. That is a narrative that's much different than previous generations. In previous generations, you never really thought about whether or not you weren't like everybody else unless you were actually a sexual minority. You probably never questioned your sexual identity. 
But this generation thinks about it in a much more conscious way. I'll never forget the day that my wife, my daughter came in to my wife and I and um, came out as a heterosexual. She, I'll let that sink in for a minute, all right, on the way back to the hotel, you oh, I got it. She came in the room and she said, Mom, Dad, I want you to know that I am not gay. I am straight. And I said, thank you, Scott. Um, really, really appreciate you sharing that with us. And she, she, she goes, okay, just wanted you to know. I said, good. She left, and I looked at my wife, and I'm like, should we have a follow-up conversation about that? Like, what was going on there? You know, like, that was totally not uh, what I, I, I was really puzzled by it. So I, you know, followed up with her and, and sat down on the edge of her bed. I said, hey, I'm really glad that you uh, felt comfortable talking about, um, you know, about your sexual identity uh, with me. Uh, I feel like I know much more about you than I did before you, you, you shared, that, shared that. But I'm curious, why did you feel you needed to tell us that? He said, well, isn't that just some, one of the things that we have to do at some point in time is figure out who we're attracted to and what our sexual identity is? And so for a whole generation, there's a whole new narrative, a whole new set of boxes to check out. Uh, and, so, and, so you, and so we realize that these questions get asked at a different time and a different context, a different culture, and they uh, lead to different things. So let's take a look at... Uh, at this connected generation and talk a little bit about what's shaping some of the things that uh, they're doing. If you guys look, there's a little green light that's going to go off on that uh, thing for device right there. And when you see that, you can just go ahead and advance it, okay? Um, so what we have here is, uh, this comes from a big study that we did at Barna with World Vision. We looked at the faith practices of 18 to 35 year olds, millennials basically, in 25 different countries around the globe including the United States. And I'm going to share some of what we found uh, in that study. So we call them the connected generation. There's a reason that we call them the connected generation. As we started doing our research, what we found, and this just gives you a little bit of a, a, an idea of the different countries that we looked at, uh, in North America, Latin America, Africa, Europe, uh, Asia, and Oceania, these were the uh, the regions that we were studying. We looked at 25 different countries spread across those different regions. And one of the things that we came back finding from this research was simply this, that young adults around the globe are often more alike than people in their country. So there's a generational tribe that is happening in our global landscape right now that has never really existed before. Because they're watching the same YouTube videos, because they're watching the same TED Talks, they're having access to the same films and television shows and media, uh, they're much more aware and connected to global events than other generations prior. They actually share a common set of values that is very unique to them as an age than they are with any group older than them in their own country. That is a radical uh, discovery, and it makes you kind of wonder, what is God doing in the world? It's why we call them uh, the connected generation. So we're going to uh, take a look at some different things uh, about them. The first thing that we want to talk about is the idea of resilient disciples. What is a resilient disciple? And David, in my uh, research that we did for Faith for Exiles, we looked at the faith practices of 18 to 29-year-olds in uh, the United States, these are people that had identified as a Christian at some point in time in their life. We wanted to know a lot about them. We took that same methodology and we actually applied it uh, to this world vision study that we did. 
and we were able to actually learn some things and connect some things uh, across these, uh, these uh, uh, millennials globally. But what I want to share with you is uh, some of what we found from that. And the, the subtitle on the book is Five Ways uh, for a New Generation to Follow Jesus in Digital Babylon. Digital Babylon is what we describe the current context of our day. Um, some of you that are older know that you kind of felt a little cultural tension in our world. Uh, you're encountering difference at a greater speed. doesn't matter uh, what the color of your skin is or anything like that. We are encountering difference in massively uh, different ways than we ever have before. And it's challenging and making us aware of our existence. It's causing a lot of tension, polarization. And some of that is as a result of this digital Babylon. We're kind of moving out of a Jerusalem-like kind of context where everything's kind of homogenized into this massive diversity on many different metrics and scales and ways. And that's creating disorientation for a lot of people. It's not just something that's happening in the United States. It's not just because of our current president that nationalism is taking off. This is a global phenomenon that's happening not just even among Western nations, but in nations like India. I got in a huge Twitter uh, spat with some Indian nationalists that were trying to kick Christian organizations out of India. And they were saying, hey, look, we are Hindus. We have one country that belongs to us. You guys have all these other countries. Just leave us alone, you know? And they're, they're fighting for their identity. That is the weight of digital Babylon that we're experiencing. People trying to figure out how to deal and navigate this change. We realize that discipleship looks different in digital Babylon than it does in Jerusalem. And that's what we want to explore a little bit. So take a look at this green square here. It represents how much the typical 15 to 23 year old takes in in screen time every year. About 27 plus, uh, uh, 2700 plus hours a year. This uh, uh, red rectangle here represents how much the typical 15 to 23 year old takes in of spiritual content on their screen. And the orange or yellow, uh, depending on how your eyes see it, uh, triangle represents 291 hours, which is the number of the amount of spiritual content the typical church-going 15 to 23-year-old takes in. What you realize real quickly looking at this is that the amount of content coming in is incredibly out of proportion for probably what most of us are trying to communicate with our kids. And this led David and I to type two really powerful words into this, uh, onto the page. And that was just simply screens disciple. Screens disciple. Gates talked a little bit about this earlier, but it's probably one of the disruptions at the church that is invisible and silent and most people never even saw coming. When I went to go see my doctor recently, he asked me, he said, hey, so what do you think you have? That's what, that was how he walked into the room. What do you think you have? And I go, that's a really interesting way to start this conversation. Why would you ask me that? And he said, well, I know that you Googled all your symptoms and you know that, you know, you either, you know, you just need to rest more or you're dying. All right. And uh, so, uh, so uh, I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. He knows that he, I'm being doctored by somebody else, that I have another healthcare provider in my life that I'm consulting before I ever go to him. And it made me realize that's what's happening in the teenagers that I'm working with too. I had a group of senior students. And uh, we were sitting around, one of them was arguing with me about the existence of God. And I, I've been at this church for 29 years, so I remember the day this kid was born, and I watched him grow up, and I know he's not as smart as the argument that we're having. 
So I'm going, he's getting his information from somewhere. It's kind of like when somebody writes that paper and you're like, this paper's too good for you. Uh, I, I smell plagiarism. So I wrote down a couple words and phrases that this kid was uh, using. I put them into Google and sure enough, this website popped up, which was how to debate a theist. And he had not only read this site, he had internalized it so much that he could synthesize it and bring it back into a conversation. Now normally what would have happened in my small group as these seniors came in is they would, one of them would say, hey Mark, I'm having some doubts about my faith. Uh, can, can we talk about that? And we, we wouldn't just talk about the, the right or wrong of that or whether God exists in the proof. We'd also talk about their experiences. Are you reading the word? Are you spending time in prayer? Are you encountering the presence of Jesus Christ in your life? Uh, it would be this holistic conversation that I would journey with him on uh, as he was trying to navigate this, this doubt, this intense doubt in his life. I didn't even know he was asking this question. He's showing up to small group. He's showing up to youth group. He's going to summer camp. He's st standing there worshiping, going along with all. From every exterior cue, this kid is following a trajectory of faith in his life. But once we start getting under the surface, we find out that nine months prior to ever talking to me about it, he starts visiting the site and he starts looking at all these different things online. He starts building a case. Now when I'm getting him, he's much further along because he's been discipled. He's been following in the footsteps of another teacher that I haven't had the chance to speak into. I haven't had the chance to be the mediator with a doubt in his life. So this is a significant, significant thing to understand. Now, I'm not anti-technology uh, in the least bit, but we have to be aware of what's going on and how different this is for this generation than for another generation. What's going on out here is very different on what's going on inside. So we, uh, just to give you an idea too, uh, we broke those 18 to 29 year olds into four different groups. And I'll give you some tags for them. So the, the first are we call the prodigals. These are ex-Christians. Uh, included in our research, if somebody said, I've never been a Christian, or I'm a Muslim, or uh, I've never been, to, I, I don't, church has never been a part of my life, they weren't a part of this study. So 18 to 29 year olds, about 83% of 18 to 29 year olds say at some point in time in my life, I consider myself to be a Christian. Okay? So that's who we we're looking at, is that 83%. 22% of that group or what we call prodigals. These are people who say, at one time I considered myself a Christian, but I no longer identify as a Christian. This 22% is not merely just not going to church. Some of them actually are going to church. They haven't had the, the heart to break it to their mom and dad that they don't believe that God is real anymore, and so they're still going to church. But for that 22%, uh, they no longer identify as a Christian. All right, and the great majority of them are not involved in any kind of faith community on any kind of regular basis. Now, what is interesting about these, this 22%? We're entering an era of what I call polite atheism. And that's gonna be really important for another point I'm gonna make later on. And that is that none of these people necessarily care about even arguing uh, their point or where they've landed. They've just decided this isn't for me. And so you can sit there and you can give them the best apologetics uh, talks and lectures and thinking, that's not even the conversation that they're having. This just isn't, in fact, they're even like happy that you can believe. They'll, they'll, they'll tell you, you know, I really respect my mom and dad's faith. It's just, I, it's not for me. I'm not, I'm not a part of this anymore. And so we're entering into an era of what I call polite atheism. 
But that 22% number for David's book, uh, You Lost Me, that uh, he wrote prior to this one, I did some of the analysis on that book. And um, one of the things that we found uh, in, in that study about seven, eight years ago was that number was 11%. So in less than a decade, that prodigal number has doubled. It's doubled. So anytime that you're seeing research talking about the speed of change in this area, it's true. Okay, nomads. These are lapsed Christians. They make up about 30% of the population. We have habitual churchgoers. They make up 38. This is the group that says, I still consider myself a Christian, but I'm not really attending church. I'm not connected to a faith community, like my Uber driver today. And then uh, we have habitual churchgoers, 38%. This group uh, goes to church uh, at least once a month, but often more than that. So they're going to church at a pretty good, uh, a pretty good regular uh, rate. They consider themselves to be Christians, yet when we ask them some basic doctrinal questions about the nature of the Bible, the nature of Jesus Christ, the nature of their salvation, they don't give us an answer that would square with Orthodox Christianity. Also, when we ask them how central is faith to their life, they don't say that it's a major part of what, who they are and what they're about in terms of how they make decisions, how they live their lives. But these are in our walls, the walls of our church. They're coming with great frequency. Now, resilient disciples go to church with the same frequency level as the habituals, but they also do one other thing in addition to Sunday service. They answer those basic orthodox questions uh, correctly, and they say that faith is a central part of their life and that they live their faith so that they can influence others with their life. And we call those resilient disciples. Probably in your mind, when you think of what that ideal uh, young Christian man or woman is, that's probably that re resilient disciple that you're thinking of. Now, we have focused a lot on the dropout problem, but what this book focused on was those that are staying. Why are they staying? What's going on in their life? So we asked these groups a ton of different questions. We found some really interesting things out. One of them has to do with screens. So when we look at the screen time of these groups, we find that habits definitely matter. And uh, what we've got going on here is uh, 562 hours. That represents the resilience. That's how much spiritual content they're taking in annually. Compare that to 291 hours of the habituals. And then you can see that the nomads and the prodigals in this, uh, this uh, red square, there's just this little peeking out behind is the nomad square. Uh, behind it, about 100 hours of spiritual content every year. So there is definitely a relationship to their screen time, what they're doing on screen, with their actual faith category that we place them in. All right? Uh, looking at globally, uh, I told you we applied this research to our, our World Vision Project. And you can see here that in these 25 countries that North America and Europe uh, and Oceania, we're seeing very small numbers of resilience in those parts of the world, but in Africa, in Asia, uh, in Latin America, it's just a little bit better than the average in Latin America. We're seeing uh, a lot more resiliency. What does that mean for us in the United States? It means that we're going to be taking our spiritual leadership from elsewhere in the globe. That wherever faith is being practiced, lived out, the Bible's being read, theology's being done, uh, they're going to be taking the leadership, and we in, in the U.S. have to be thinking a little bit about that. 
We also need to look at, as Gabe said, I'm not really so alarmed about the numbers. How do we get these people back or whatever? God has always used a remnant to accomplish his purposes. And we think about this connected generation, how much they share in common with one another, but also just kind of the fact that there is a, a small group of them, but they are the Daniels. They are the Shadrach, Meshachs, and Abednegoes. They are the Esthers that we believe that in that moment of, of challenge, they're going to stand up and do bold things in the name of uh, Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at some of the practices. We found there were five themes that came out among those resilience that were really different than the rest. Uh, the first was experiencing Jesus. The next was cultural discernment. The third was meaningful relationships. The fourth was vocational discipleship. And the fifth is countercultural mission. I'll let you dive in deeply into these themes. One of the interesting challenges I've been sharing this with pastors around the country is a lot of pastors will go, oh, we're doing all of that. Maybe I don't know what that vocational discipleship thing is, but we're doing all the rest of it. But our research is showing that these students are not having the same encounter with Jesus. The habituals and the resilience are having very, very different experiences with Jesus Christ, uh, even though they're going to church at about the same rate. Um, when it comes to relationships, resilience are having a different encounter with the people that they're attending church with than the other groups. Uh, and by, by double-digit percentage points, it's, it's, it's remarkable. Um, so I want to spend some time diving in, though, on, uh, on, on one theme. Um, uh, but before I do that, sorry about that. I wasn't sure where this was going. Um, one of the things that we did find in this, and we were able to go back when we did the uh, Connected Generation study and ask some even more nuanced questions from what we learned in the Faith for Exile study. But we found that prayer and scripture were at the foundation of resilience that when we looked at the practices of what they were doing, it was very different. So you'll see the, the, uh, the, uh, the aqua color there are the resilient disciples and the purples are the habituals. I think that's the interesting comparison point because they're going to church about the same rate. So if we take a look, praying on my own, okay, only about 6% difference there between the resilience and the habituals, but I read scripture on my own. 42% to 87% of resilience, a huge difference between those two. When we look at praying with others, resilience, much more likely than, uh, than those that are habituals to be praying with other people. We take a look at giving money to the place of the community worship, We're seeing a really big difference in the practice of resilience to um, habituals. Telling others about my beliefs, uh, you're about 23% more likely to share your faith if you are a resilient compared to if you are habitual. So we're seeing some real differences between the two, but really prayer and scripture are two of the things that we found really uh, are setting them apart. So vocational discipleship. This is practice number four. And I want to spend a little bit of time just talking about that because it really has to do with the intersection of what you all are doing with students in education and uh, this idea of discipleship. This idea that our, our job needs to be an extension of our faith, and the work that we do uh, uh, fills that. So vocational discipleship, uh, in our definition, based on what we glean from the themes that were coming back to us from the um, survey respondents, means knowing and living God's calling, especially in the arena of work, and right-sizing our ambitions to God's purposes. All right? That's our kind of working definition based on the results that we found. 
Now, because it's after lunch and because you're all gonna get a copy of the book, I'm not gonna go into a great amount of detail on some of the sub points here, but I do wanna show you some separation just to give you an idea of, whoa, where do we go? Jump back to the beginning. Or are we are we are we like on backup PDF mode here? Is that what we got rolling? Okay, I'm figuring. I'm I'm, I'm with you now. I said, "Go! Why are these coming up from the bottom?" Okay. Well, did uh, it not export? It looks like it didn't export the rest of the slides. Oh, there we go. Right there. That's good. So we took a look, is there, can you go up again, just see what's before that, yeah, let me, I wanna show the, those two there. There, go, stop, stop. Okay, keep going, keep going. Because I had to load in more slides. Keep going, keep going, it's the next one. Keep going. Oh, almost. Like everybody's getting dizzy, feel like, oh, I'm starting to load. We're going to serve lunch twice. Alright, we'll give it one more shot, and then if not, we'll, we'll just land the plane. Oh, oh. Okay, keep, keep going, keep going, keep going. Go slow, go slow, go slow, so it has time to... There you go. No? Oh, 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 there you go. Yay! Hey, we got it! Alright, so we asked uh, all of our respondents a bunch of sub-questions related to a lot of different themes, then we did something called factor analysis. We found out which themes hung together, and that's how we got our five practices, right? So, uh, when we look at this, okay, these are questions like, I want to use my unique talents and gifts to honor God. Christians are called to do their work with integrity, no matter what type of work. Uh, God designs each person with a unique calling in their life. Those are some of the sub-questions that we ask. Look at how different the resilience think about faith and work than the habituals. There is a huge gap in the uh, graphing there that you can see. Uh, sometimes as many as 30 to 40 plus percentage points separating the resilience from the habituals. This idea of integrating faith and work is really critical to how this generation is seeing what they do. It's also shaping a narrative that we're seeing with Generation Z, which is that these uh, young people, they are putting their work priorities above things like family priorities. Their career and that path is really central to them, even more so than this idea of having a family someday and getting married. And so we have to understand that, that this is a huge interest point for Generation Z, but also for millennials. Go ahead and show us uh, that next slide, if we can. We asked some questions about things their church might be doing in the way of shaping their calling. Once again, notice the gaps between the habituals, all right? Uh, I better understand my purpose in life. I have learned to view my gifts and passions as part of God's calling. Resilience for saying the church is really helping me think about these things. But here's the thing. These numbers are still pretty low, percentage-wise, even for the resilience. When I ask pastors to evaluate themselves on how well they're doing in these areas, pastors always rank vocational discipleship as the worst thing that they're doing in terms of practices in building disciples. 
This is something that we need to all get better at in our, in our schools, in our churches, and everything like that. Down here where we see resilience even drop below habituals is I have received a scholarship for college through my church. Nobody seems to be doing that. So, uh, so kind of interesting to kind of see that play out um, in the numbers, all right? Go ahead and uh, let's take a look at the next one. So some of the nuanced questions that we were able to ask in the Connected Generation study based off what we learned. Uh, my church has helped me better understand my purpose in life. We see resilience far outpace the habituals. Uh, I am given real chances to contribute to my church. Once again, resilience stand out. I have learned what it feels like to be a part of a team. Um, at church, I have learned how the Bible applies to my field or interest area. My church has helped me to better live out my faith in the workplace. I have been inspired to live generously based on the example of people at my church. Over and over and over again, resilience are thinking in a more integrated way than uh, the habituals. And that is uh, important to note. So in this, we found that there are a couple themes for developing connected leaders. I want to share them with you. Um, and, and this is one of the really big mega themes from the Connected uh, Generation Research. Globally, 82% of young adults said that society is facing a crisis of leadership. Okay, go ahead and uh, show us up. I'll, I'll give you an idea of just the world picture of this, okay? This is not just coming from one country. This is a global phenomenon that the younger generation is looking up and saying, I don't think that we have the leaders that we need to help us. This is a huge problem if we think we have something to help a younger generation with, if they don't necessarily see that. But it also means that they're looking for leadership opportunities. They're looking for ways that they can speak in and be a part of the solution. Uh, one of the top themes in terms of what, what the problem is with leadership is corruption. Just this feeling that those that are leading do not have everybody's best interest at heart, and you can see in certain parts of the world that even comes off stronger uh, than others, okay? So, um, so we get this idea that we need to be in the leadership business. So uh, one of the things that churches do to develop leaders that we found when we started looking at resilient disciples, I have learned what it feels to be a part of a team. This idea that giving real opportunities to contribute is something that this generation wants but it's also a way that we develop leaders. We have to bring them to the table. We need their imaginations for the future because they're thinking differently than any previous generation. This whole idea of, hey, you guys are young, you gotta pay your dues before you can get a seat at the table like I did, that's an old model. This generation does not have the wisdom that older generations have, but they have some other things. They have some different perspectives and windows that we need. If we can marry the wisdom of older generations with the new schools, new tools and imaginations of younger generations, not only will they contribute more as opposed to being a consumer, but they are going to be engaged in helping our institutions reimagine themselves and thrive uh, into the future. All right? uh, the other uh, principle of developing leaders that we found from our research is modeling faithfulness. One of the things that we found is that resilient disciples like hanging around Christians that they like to be with and that they also aspire to be like. So they're looking at the people in their church and they're going, not only do I enjoy being with these older people, but I actually like admire their life. I see the good things that are coming out of their life and I want to become that. All right. 
Uh, next slide. Seeing needs and serving others. Uh, one of the things, uh, living on countercultural mission was one of the themes that came out for resilience. It's basically this idea of actually being able to see the impact and the power of the gospel at work. And when we actually give young people the opportunity to see needs, to identify them, to develop that empathy, and then to serve other people, they're putting their faith into action and they're seeing something powerful take place. Much like uh, one of the things we've come to know about exiles is that, that God uses them in moments of change in really instrumental ways, but that they all face epic moments of trust. Uh, a moment where they have to make a decision how they're going to live their life because they're being compromised at the very core of who they are in their relationship with God. And that epic trust is not something that's purely private. It's usually a public thing that actually draws other people to faith. And so putting them in those uh, situations is, is really critical. I was speaking at a, an MK school in Kenya, and uh, literally there's a wall around the school. And I was sitting with a group of seniors one night, late night, we were just talking about faith and life and all kinds of interesting things. And um, I just said, what's the hardest thing about you know, going to school here? You know, you've got a wall around the school, you know, you're in another country. Tell me about that. And one of them said, sometimes it's hard to be a candle in a well-lit room. That may be one of the greatest challenges of being a Christian school. How do we help kids see the potency of the power of Christ in them? Are they around so much light that they don't see the power of the light in them? So I live in uh, Texas, and uh, I have two adult children. Uh, my daughter is uh, 21. She's living in Manhattan. I'll be honest with you, I was a little nervous about my daughter going to live in New York because I wasn't completely sure, is her foundation secure? She challenged so much about Christianity when she was back in Texas. But real quickly after being in New York, and being in, she's in the fashion uh, design industry, she was saying, Dad, you would not believe what I'm coming to understand about my faith in this environment. And I realized she's seeing the light. She's seeing the difference that Jesus makes in life. It was hard for her to see that in Texas. She was seeing a lot of hypocrisy. She wasn't necessarily seeing a lot of the, the potency of the gospel at work. That is one of the greatest challenges we have. How do we help students lean into those moments where they have to trust God and no one else but God in order to see him at work in their life? That may be one of the greatest challenges that we have in helping this generation become the leaders um, that God has called them to be. The connected generation wants the church to be a laboratory of leadership, not just a place for spirituality. They want to see the church as a place that's helping them grow and stretching them and giving them opportunities uh, like uh, no other. Um, some of the statements that we, we said that saw that is that they, they believe that because of their faith, right, uh, that they're concerned about the welfare of others. They, they want to give of their time to help others in need. They want to stand up against injustices of, uh, in, for individuals and groups. Um, and uh, they, they want to stand up against corruption. They want to give of their own resources. So what we're seeing here is that faith makes a difference, and they're wanting an opportunity to somehow 
display that difference and to act on what they feel God is moving inside of them. And they don't often feel that church and places, communities of faith are where that happens. Bottom line is the connected generation doesn't want to be mere consumers. They want to be contributors. They want to be that. We just haven't given them the opportunities to do that, to give them those places where they can rise up and, and, and experience that. That has got to be the greatest challenge that we have before us with this generation, is helping them not just be the consumer at church, but to express it. So First Peter says, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and worship God and glorify God on the day that he visits us. This is an apologetic for today as much as it was to the church of Corinth. He doesn't say, make sure you have all your arguments together. Make sure that you know why it is that you believe. That, that's important too, and that's elsewhere in Scripture. But what he's saying is, live such good lives that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they see your good deeds, and they glorify God on the day that he visits us. Uh, this is one of the things that we, mega themes we pulled out from the Connected Research. Young adults don't merely want to see that Christianity is true. They also want to understand that it is good. That it is good. I believe that good may be the new apologetic. Because there is a lot of stuff going on right now amongst Christians. And a lot of it is, well, I'm right. This is my theology. I believe it. But the way that we're expressing it isn't good. It isn't good, even if it's right. And this generation wants to see that it's good. They want to see the evidence that it is what it says and claims to be. And I believe that you as educators have the opportunity to really live into that moment. Esther is in this situation where she is uh, literally genocide. It's getting ready to take place. All of the wheels are in motion. And Mordecai comes to Esther and he says to her, she's living in this exilic life. He says, you know what? God is going to protect his people as he's promised. He'll rise up a deliverer. He doesn't say God. God isn't mentioned in Esther, but that's the implication. A deliverer will rise up and will save the nation of Israel. But for such a time as this, maybe this is your opportunity to be used by God. We often focus on that message to Esther, but we don't focus on the person who gave it to him, Mordecai. I believe that for those of us that are leading young people, this is our Mordecai moment. This is our opportunity to tell a generation that is thinking different, that is imagining different, that is living in times of complex change and accelerated pace. This is why you were born for a moment like this. We need to be the Mordecais that are shoring them up, that are encouraging them along, that are pushing them and nudging them to do the good things and the good work that God has called them to. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you enjoyed the conversation, please hit subscribe and follow our podcast. It's important that we continue these relevant conversations for Christian education.